It's the football, 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 and sometimes other sports show. Here's your host, AJ Nicoletti. What up? MFFSOSS.com at FFFSOSS, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch.tv slash AJ Nick3. Big pot on this Thursday. Had a Final Four weekend. We will, we will do a full NCAA tournament Final Four preview, then into a weekend soccer preview with footy coming back after an international break. NFL headlines with a bunch of rules being approved and the commissioner addressing the media with some interesting quotes. So we'll do that. We'll provide a Lamar update. We'll provide an Aaron Rodgers update in the NFL segment as well. Uh, a little golf and then Mandalorian reaction to episode five of season three. So that is the program tonight. I'm thinking maybe Sunday I'll put together a national championship preview, maybe like a 20 minute thing, um, 20 minute, 30 minute thing if I can get there. For Monday Night's National Championship. So we'll go over the possible championship games. But I do plan on doing a little quick pod on Sunday. Putting it out as soon as I can on Sunday. And then having that ready all day. And then Monday for you to listen to ahead of the Natty on Monday night. So that's the plan. We will do a mini pod. Mini pod. National Championship preview on uh on Sunday, put that out on Sunday, and then you can have it all day Sunday and Monday in anticipation for the national championship in Houston on Monday night. So that's the plan for national championship preview. On this pod, we will preview the final four. So that's the kickoff and really the main part of the show, I feel, uh, into a weekend soccer preview, NFL headlines, golf, Mando at the end. So again, if you're not watching Mando or you're not caught up, I'll tell you when to stop the show. Uh, but if you're Locked in like I am. Watching it when you can. It's it's outstanding. All right. Um, so kick it off. Final Four preview. Game one, we have a mid-major battle with FAU and San Diego State. One of those teams is going to be playing for a national championship on Monday. I mean, that's just surreal when you think about this tournament. But what we talked about all season with this sport was that it was wide open. And there were so many teams that could be in this position. The fact that FAU and San Diego State are, is it surprising? Yes. But when you look at it, they're two really good teams. And then the second game, we have a blue blood in UConn trying to get back on top of the mountain with another coach in Hurley. And a Miami team with Laranega, that's a really nice story too. And a good team nevertheless. So, Two good matchups. Hopefully we get two good games on Saturday night. So we'll pick the games at the end here. But just going to go through kind of each team's journey to the Final Four. Uh, some tidbits and factoids along the way. Then we'll actually preview the games with some X's and O stuff after that. But first we're going to go through each team. So um, this game with FAU San Diego State, it's the second Final Four matchup ever between non-major conference opponents. FAU is the first Conference USA school since 08 in Memphis to represent the Conference USA in the Final Four. Tusty May wanted to quit this job early in his tenure. And, I mean, they lost three games this year. And they're in the Final Four. So, 
How crazy is that storyline? First round, they needed a jump ball that might not have been a jump ball, but some luck at the end of the game to beat the 8-seed Memphis. Then in the second round, they took on the 16 Fairleigh Dickinson after they upset Purdue and just kind of weren't necessarily impressive, but they did enough to beat Fairleigh Dickinson, 78-78 on the night. Then Madison Square Garden for the East Regional. They beat Tennessee, the 4-seed, 62-55. And then in the Elite Eight, they knocked off K-State 79-76 to cut down the Nets at the world's most famous arena. Their opponent in Houston, San Diego State, the first Mountain West representative in the Final Four. Coach Dutcher, the longtime Steve Fisher assistant with Michigan, and then following Coach Fisher to San Diego State to finish out his tenure as a head coach. Dutcher gets the job. The COVID year, they have a team that loses two games that might have been most likely a one seed, if anything, the highest two, but most likely a one seed because of the way they were playing ball that year. Um, Dodger known to have done a ton with the Fab Five and recruiting them to Michigan, getting a title there previously with Fisher, and now... With it being his job at San Diego State, he gets that program to a Final Four. Their journey in the tournament to Houston. First round, they knocked off the 12 seed Charleston, 63-57, in a game where we first saw how good this team was defensively. Um, Charleston can shoot it and score, and San Diego State only gave up 57. Second round, they knocked off Furman, who was the 13, after they pulled off the upset over UVA in the round of 64. In the round of 32, they beat him by 20. Only giving up 52. Sweet 16. They beat the number one seed overall. And in the bracket. The Alabama Crimson Tide. 71-64. And then in the regional final. They knocked off the six seed Creighton. 57-56 in a battle. And we understand the call at the end of the game. That I talked about on Tuesday. So that is the mid-major matchup. In game one on Saturday night. How about game two? UConn and Miami. UConn, when they get to Final Fours, they usually win them four out of the previous five times. The Connecticut Huskies have been in the Final Four. They have taken home the national championship on Monday night. Hurley could be the next UConn coach to take that step and win a title and bring it back to Connecticut. So the first round, they seemed, I don't want to say they were in trouble against Iona, but Iona was shooting it really well. And then UConn in the second half came in and absolutely dominated. Finishing that game, 87-63. Second round, Connecticut beat St. Mary's by 15-70-55. Controlled that one. Then in the Sweet 16 out in Vegas, they really blitzed Arkansas and shot it really well and played pretty strong defense as well. Only giving up 65 and scoring 88. And then in the West Regional, Beating the three seed Gonzaga 82 54. A dominant performance from the Connecticut Huskies. And really, have they been asked to play 40 minutes in one of these wins? Not necessarily. But they've done either so well in the first half or so well in the second half that the game hasn't been contested towards the end of the 40 minutes. So. Connecticut comes out of the West region. Their opponent, Miami, 
and Coach Larinagin. What a great story they are. Previously for Miami, two Sweet 16s, the Elite Eight last year, now in a Final Four. Fair path to Houston, a first-round win over the 12-seed Drake. Where they... That was a close game. That was a good game. Second round, they knocked off Indiana uh, comfortably, 85-69. Sweet 16, a really good shooting performance, scoring performance against Houston, 89-75. And then the regional final, they knock off Texas, 88-81, in an awesome comeback in the second half that they did not make a 3-in. A 13-0 run, if I'm not mistaken. Got them even with Texas in a field goal drought, and they took the lead and ended up taking it for good. So that's how they came out of the Midwest, and they'll face UConn. Again, this is the first Final Four without a one, two, or three seed ever. The third without a one seed, um, that was 06 and 11, and the second without a one or a two, also in 2011. And it is the second highest total of seeds, only behind 2011. And it's the first Final Four since 1970 with three schools making their first appearance. So let's dive into game one with FAU taking on San Diego State, the nine out of the east, the five out of the south. FAU's coach, Dusty May, he's got a ton of guards. He starts four of them in Davis, Martin, Boyd, Greenlee. Golden is the big. Forrest, Weatherspoon, Gaffney off the bench, the other guards, and then Rosado is the other big for Golden. For San Diego State, Dutcher plays about eight, nine guys, play 20 minutes. Bradley, Trammell, Butler, Johnson, Mensa are the starters. Then Ladie, Parrish, Psycho, and Arap off the bench. Um, Parrish has had some big games off the bench. Arap has had some big games off the bench. Trammell's probably their best overall player. Uh, but Bradley has some good experience being a good player on a bad team at Cal, now coming to a really good team in San Diego State. So, a lot of guards here. I think it's a pace game. FAU does like to score, but San Diego State's defense has really traveled so far in this tournament. They've given up 57, 52, 64, and 56 points. So, San Diego State's calling card is their defense. And then offensively, they do enough efficiently to get enough buckets to win a game. I mean, we've just seen it throughout the course of this tournament. And playing really, really strong defense. Putting a team in a field goal drought where it might not be 8-2 over two minutes, but it's going to be a methodical... 13, maybe they give up one or two free throws. It'll be like a 14-3 run over six, seven minutes where they just played uh, suffocating defense and didn't let you get a good shot. So the pace here is really interesting. Can FAU win a defensive struggle at San Diego State's pace? Possibly. Can San Diego State score with FAU if FAU is having their way with the Aztecs at the other end. Also, I'm I'm not really sure. I think they can, right? They've put up 70-plus twice now um, in the Furman game and in the Alabama game, but the Creighton game was an absolute struggle. 
And the Charleston game, it wasn't like they shot the lights out. They really played great defense against the scoring team. So it's a pace game for me. We know San Diego State's defense travels. So will it be able to travel and be as effective as it's been throughout this tournament? Or does that end on Saturday night? And FAU, they've only lost three games, guys. They have a a resolve that's like, we will not lose this game. You know, we will not lose. You saw it in the first round against Memphis and against Tennessee and K-State in the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, respectively, at the Garden. This FAU team does not quit. They keep fighting. Um, they find ways to get buckets, whether that's three-pointers or at the rim, driving it, uh, dishing it to Golden. Like, you've seen FAU score in kind of a facet of ways, a multitude in their offense. Now, San Diego State has played teams more talented, obviously, in Alabama. Alabama's one of the most talented teams. But their defense is amazing against Alabama. Alabama did not shoot it well at all. So if they can replicate that against a team that's not necessarily as good, but here they are in the Final Four, I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying the talent level, okay? If, if San Diego State, the Aztecs, can replicate what they did to Bama, they should be in the championship game easily. If they can continue to play the defense that they've done throughout this tournament, they will be in the championship game. If FAU scores efficiently, if FAU plays the game at their pace, if FAU's guards and Golden stay out of foul trouble, that's big because I think San Diego State, to a man, is probably bigger, stronger. But FAU's kind of been a, a different team all along. You know, not a lot of respect for a team that won so many games. So I'm going to lean towards San Diego State in this one. I, I think the defense has shown time and time again this tournament specifically with Coach Duck. Like, they are locked in on that end of the floor. They, um, I think it was Spernarkle, Ian Eagle and Spernarkle had that regional, if I'm not mistaken. And Spernarkle did a really good breakdown of so many teams are so eager to help drivers that they let slips in for dunks or they help off three-point shooters in the corners to give up threes. San Diego State almost refuses to help on-ball defenders. If you get beat, it's up to you to recover. We're not helping. Like, they don't really help. They don't really switch. It's it's a very, I don't want to say antiquated or outdated practice, but you don't really see it in today's basketball. You see a lot of teams that are able to try to switch one through five. You see a lot of teams that are uh, eager to stop dribble penetration and help and rotate rather than give up a layup or have the on-ball defender try to get back in position. San Diego State's the opposite. They really don't mind not helping. It's very weird in today's basketball. And when Spinarco did that, I started to notice it more and more after he did that little um, drawing board presentation. It was a very interesting point. A very interesting point. So, I don't think the FAU guards are that level where 
if San, like San Diego State's like, yeah, beat us in the basket, go ahead. I don't know if they can. You know, I don't know if it's on an island, can you shake a guy for a three? These San Diego State guys don't do that. They really don't. They play unreal defense. So, since I think it's going to be a pace game, since I know what San Diego State's done this tournament, and this is not a knock on FAU, somebody's going to lose the game. Somebody's going to lose game two as well. Like, that's just how it is. Two teams will move on to Monday night. Two teams are going home. I think in game one, San Diego State moves on to Monday night, and FAU goes home. Now game two, with the four UConn coming out of the West, the five Miami coming out of the Midwest. I do have a future on UConn. I have not thought about hedging yet. Well, I haven't done anything about hedging yet. I've kind of thought about it a little bit, but I don't think I'm going to. Um, I think this game could be high scoring when you look at all the players in this game. Hurley has a very deep UConn team. Sanogo, the big starts. Hawkins is the shooter. Newton brings the ball up, as does Jackson Jr. And Caravan is also a shooter with some length. And then you go to their bench. Sanogo ever gets in foul trouble or needs to be spelled. Klingon comes in. He has been developing so well as a youngster in this program with Hurley. Calcaterra is a shooter. Aline's a shooter. Diara comes in and plays a little bit, but you probably won't see him much. So young still, and there's so many players ahead of him. But UConn, to me, is kind of just bigger across the board at every position. Newton has some size. Hawkins isn't small. Caravan's pretty big. Jackson Jr.'s athletic and long. We know Klingon's long. Calcaterra's sneaky long. Okay, so... I think this UConn size, and when we talk about the X's and O's in a second, I think that will play a major factor. Now, for Miami with Coach Laranega, he starts the three guards, Miller, Wong, and Pack. Miller has shown that he's the best player on the team. I think Wong is excellent as his Pack, but Miller is just time and time again this tournament been really, really good for Laranega. Uh, Paplar is the fourth guard in the starting five. Omari's the big man up front. Now, not a big bench for Miami. Joseph, Beverly, and Walker have been coming in. But there's not a ton of size here. There really isn't. Um, so I think it could be high scoring. And UConn, I made the point earlier, UConn's been decimating teams. They haven't really needed to play a full 40 minutes. They haven't been tested down the stretch of a game. So... Does that show up here in the last five minutes of a close game here where they don't have the necessarily experience of closing it out late with the press, with a free throw competition, all these kind of things? That interests me. That does interest me. Um, but I don't know if Miami has any answer for UConn size. Because it's not just at center with Sonogo and Klingon against Samiri. It's nearly at every position. Newton's not small. Hawkins isn't small. Jackson Jr. and Caravan are big kind of wing forward players. And though there is some size in the Miami team, it's not across the board like it is on UConn. I really see UConn being able to dominate the glass, get out in transition, 
be it's going to be very difficult for Miami to do what they want to do offensively if UConn buckles down and plays defense. Because again, they're just longer. They really are. So I'm I'm expecting a UConn win here. Because of the UConn size, because they've been decimating teams. Um Miami's guards will be the only way they win this game. They're not bigger, they're not stronger, so the guards have to score, they have to dictate the game. That's the way Miami wins. They stay out of foul trouble, and Miller goes crazy, Juan goes crazy, Pack and Paplar ch uh, chip in with threes, but they're going to have to make threes. They're going to have to continue to score. They can't get in a scoring drought. For Miami to get to Monday night, they have to do what no team has done against UConn the entire tournament over four games, which is get them to play for 40 minutes. Get them in a back-and-forth, lead-changing game. That really hasn't happened for UConn. They haven't had to do anything really like that. So, I do think UConn wins this game. I think the size will be too much. UConn has just been crushing teams. The thing I do that does concern me a touch with them crushing teams is that if they get in the game with Miami late, Miami has pulled off some really nice second-half comebacks in this tournament. They've pulled off some nice wins in this tournament from a um, position where you didn't think they would win the game. You worry about that a little bit if you're back in UConn because UConn has not closed it out for 40 minutes in, in any of these four games over the past two weekends. But I do trust Hurley. I do trust Hurley's staff that they though they haven't gone through it, they've prepared for it in practice. They've scrimmaged it. They understand what they got to do in those situations. So I think it'll be San Diego State and UConn on Monday night. In game one, I see San Diego State just being too much defensively for the FAU guards. I expect San Diego State to have another great showing on the defensive side of the ball and get them to Monday night. And in the second game with UConn-Miami, UConn's size, not just at the center position, but across the wings and at the guard position, UConn's just bigger, stronger, faster, I think they dominate the glass, and they play at their pace. Now, could Miami pull it off if they shoot it really well? Yes, but Miami's guards have to do more because they're so outmanaged with the athleticism, I think, at each position. So give me San Diego State and UConn on Monday night. So we'll do um, a preview for the national championship on Sunday. Put it out as soon as I can on Sunday. If I, I do think it's San Diego State-UConn, I see UConn winning that game. Just too much talent. Um, I think UConn will overcome that because they're not just one way. Like a Bama. Bama is a really, really dependent three-point shooting team. Now, they get it in different ways, the three-pointers. But 
They really love their threes. UConn doesn't necessarily have to shoot threes over and over again. They can get to the rim. They can get to the foul line. They can do all those things. So I think UConn would beat San Diego State. Now, San Diego State-Miami would be a really, really interesting matchup. An offensive team versus a defensive team. We've seen what's happened in these matchups. San Diego State has won them. So um, that would be, a, I think, a shot for San Diego State to win. Now, UConn-FAU. If FAU pulls off a stunner against San Diego State, in my opinion, it's still a stunner. UConn wins that game, and I think Miami would beat FAU, which would be, I mean, the state of Florida would be all over that one. That would be crazy. FAU-Miami. So we'll do a uh, full preview for National Championship on Sunday once we get the winners Saturday night. So that's what we'll do because I know I went over possible Elite Eights last time. But I want to do really, really dive in for national championship preview. All right, let's go to footy because we're back after international break. EPL starts off with an absolute cracker. City, Liverpool at the Etihad. Liverpool need results. Liverpool need points. Liverpool need wins. And City, if they're going to catch Arsenal for a another title, um, they need to win as well. So both teams need a win. We've seen this fixture be, you know, 3-2, 2-2, 4-3. Like, these have been exciting matches. We've also seen a couple nil-nils in the recent Guardiola-Pep, uh, Guardiola-Klopp matchups. But I think we're going to get another scoring here, scoring one here. Liverpool need goals. They don't have the best defense right now, that's for sure. They have kept some clean sheets. Up until the loss against uh, Bournemouth. But I do see both sides getting goals here. I could see a 2-2, two, 3-3. Two, three, three. I'd see those more than I see a nil-nil, to be fair. Um, and if you said AJ pick a team to win, I'd probably say City at home. Arsenal against Leeds at the Emirates. Arsenal, eight points clear. Again, need to continue to win to get closer and closer to a point of no return for the title. Like, there's a point where you haven't clinched it yet, but you've all but clinched it. That happens. Um, where you've built a big enough gap, and all you're looking to do is run out the games. Because you're, you're going to have enough points. You just have to have the other teams lose a couple matches or not get as many points, you know. So we're approaching that for Arsenal for sure. If they get three points here and if Liverpool ever beat City and did them a favor on Saturday, um, the Emirates would be very happy with that result. And they should beat Leeds at home. No Tyler Adams for Leeds. He's going to be injured probably for the rest of the season, which is unfortunate. Bournemouth and Fulham. You could have figured this could have been a six-pointer early in the season, but Fulham's had some good results. But with the temper tantrum thrown by Mitrovic for the international break, who knows if he's going to be in the team uh, when he even gets unsuspended. So we'll see what that. Bournemouth has an opportunity here against a lighter Fulham squad, that's for sure. Brighton-Brentford, interesting matchup. Two teams that you would think mid-table, they'd be happy with those uh, finishes. But both teams fighting for 
European spots. Brighton's been really good this season, as has Brentford. So this is an exciting match. I'm looking forward. I'll watch this one for sure. I hope it's on TV or we can watch the goal zone if it's on a lot 10. But that's a good match. Brighton-Brentford for sure. Crystal Palace-Lesser City. Crystal Palace is now in the relegation battle after not after playing a really tough run of the matches of fixtures and not getting results from those matches. They sack Vieira, and now they play a bunch of sides that they certainly can beat and are six-point games. So I don't really love that from Crystal Palace's side, but here we go with a big six-pointer right away. Crystal Palace, Leicester City at Selhurst Park. That place will be jumping. Forest Wolves, another six-pointer at the city ground. Um, Wolves have been good since Lobotegi's taken over. Hit a little bit of a uh, stall, but let's see if they can pick it up at the city ground. Forest have been really good at home. They've been really, really good at home. Chelsea and Aston Villa. Can... Chelsea continue to get some results here. They're not out of it for top four. Now, they're going to have to sell a lot of people, and they're going to have a different squad next season. But I think some guys are fighting for contracts for Chelsea. Some guys are fighting for contracts uh, for next season with other clubs. But as a vessel, they're going to play for Chelsea because that's the team that's playing them right now. Um, like Isaiah, right? But will be interesting to see what team Grant Potter throws out there. And for Emery and Villa, an opportunity to steal some points at the bridge. He's done it before. Another six-pointer, West Ham, Southampton. So a lot of six-pointers this weekend, specifically at the bottom of the table in the relegation battle. Then we have Newcastle Man U, which is a very, very exciting game. Two teams vying for top four. Newcastle has some games to make up so that's a big spot against Man U at St. James Park then we have Everton and Tottenham on Monday La Liga Elche Barcelona the La Liga leaders Real Madrid play Valladolid Atletico play Real Petit Serie A Cremonese host Atalanta Inter host Florentina Juve host Hells Verona Monza taking on Lazio Samadora visit the capital Roma and Napoli against AC Milan Napoli's all but wrapped up Serie A Bundesliga, Union Berlin, Stuttgart, Rebel Leipzig, Mainz, and Der Klassiker with Dortmund up a point on Bayern, and it's Thomas Teichel's first match at Georgia Bayern. Welcome back. Take on one of your old teams in Dortmund. Ligue PSG, and Lyon. All right, NFL headlines. We got a Goodell press conference here. Some quotes about the flexing already from the Monday night games and now possibly Thursday night games. He got asked about the impact on ticket holders and fans planning trips. Quote, there isn't anybody in that room, anybody in any of the organizations who don't put our fans first. It's really important. Obviously providing the best matchups for our fans is part of what we do. That's a part of what I think our scheduling has always been focused on. And the flex has been a part of that. We're very judicious with it and we are very careful. And we look at the impacts to all that. So before the decisions are made, I think an average uh, in the years we've been doing it, about a flex and a half a year. It can vary any particular year. So it's a very important thing for us to balance the season ticket holders and the in-stadium audience. We have millions of fans who watch on television. Reaching them is a balance that you always strike, and we're making sure we do it right. End quote. John Mara, the Giants owner, is not very happy about possible uh, flex scheduling to the Thursday night games. 
and he's basically saying that fans have gotten used to switching Sunday afternoon to Sunday night, but that doesn't mean they like it. And he's right. And the fact that Goodell's trying to say that they do care about the fans is crazy. Um, more Goodell quotes here. We've always been looking at the data with respect to injuries and impact on players. That drove our decisions throughout the first 12 or so years of Thursday Night Football and how it's evolved. I think we've had data that's very clear. It doesn't show a higher injury rate, but we recognize shorter weeks. We went through this with COVID, too. We've had a lot of flexibility in those areas. Those are obviously different circumstances, but I think we work very closely on that. I hear from a lot of players directly, too. They love the 10 days afterwards. In fact, they call it the mini buy. So there's benefits on that side. You have different views. You want to consider them all. Players have views. Coaches have views. We have to balance all that. So honestly, like the flexing of Monday night games is really bad, guys, in my opinion. And now I understand Amazon paid a lot of money for Thursday night games, but they invested in the package. They should know what they're getting in the Thursday night games. But the product, I guess they want. We can't flex Thursday night. That's bad. I understand they're going to try to do it um, with weeks in advance. I don't like it. I don't like it. We're getting to a point here where we're forgetting about the fans that actually go to the games. Now, as a fan myself, have I gone to a bunch of games recently? No, not necessarily. But as a fan who grew up with Jet season tickets, thanks to my dad, um, even though I was a Cowboy fan, and still am a Cowboy fan, obviously, but... We would go every time the Jets were home, and we would experience going to NFL Sunday. Like, I experienced NFL Sundays a lot differently than a lot of other people's did. You know, going to the games. Not a lot of people go to the games. A lot of people just watch Red Zone now. I'm kind of one of those people. I don't really go to a ton of games. But for Goodell to say that the fans are at the forefront, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I just, I don't think that's true. He can say all he wants, but the actions are different. Now, he got asked about the commanders, um, the lawsuit and everything. He said, we made a comment back last February. We made a commitment to, uh, we made a commitment publicly. We made it in front of Congress. We made a jerk call, so we'll continue with that. Not much there. And then he couldn't really talk about the Brian Flores lawsuit. Now, we have the rule changes. So... Philly asked about people being used uh, using zero and you can use zero. So now people can have zero, which is good. Um, Chargers asked for an adjustment of the play clock following instant replay reversal consistent with other time rules. I think that's big. Uh, Houston, the replay officials jurisdiction who allow review on four failed fourth down attempts without challenging. I think that's cool. Um, all right, competition committee now. To change the definition of a launch to leaving one or both feet, uh, to make the penalty for tripping a personal foul, to make the penalty for illegal handling the ball forward consistent with the other illegal acts, such as illegal forward pass, to make the penalty for illegal punch, drop kits, place kits consistent with the other illegal acts, um, then to prevent offense from benefiting by extension of the half as a result of their foul. And then also by the competition committee to clarify the use of the helmet against an opponent by removing the butt ram spear language from Article 8, they say, and incorporating those actions into impermissible use of the helmet. Um, then they've also approved some bylaws about roster stuff. They tabled the 4th and 15, which I think is kind of interesting. So they tabled the 4th and 15 instead of the onside kick proposal. So I, I would expect them to revisit that. 
do a trial run in the preseason and maybe introduce it for this season or at least next season. So we'll see. All right. Lamar Jackson update. Uh, his daily tweet, I guess you could say. Here he is. Quote, I don't remember me sitting out on oh my guys week one versus the Jets, the week 12 versus the Broncos. How come all of a sudden I sit out because of money in which I could have got hurt at a time within the time frame when we know the Super Bowl has been on my mind since April 2018. Let's get real. I'd rather have a 100% PCL than go out there and play horrible, forcing myself to put my guys in bad positions. Now that's selfish to me. So that's all Lamar update. Um, and again, I think more NFL teams have the, the perspective and opinion on Lamar that I do, which is he's a good quarterback. He's not worth all that guaranteed money because he got hurt at any time. And though he does have that MVP, he has not translated that into a ton of postseason success. Now, does postseason success mean getting to a Super Bowl and winning? Sure. But I would have even taken an AFC title game to be like, hey, at least he made the title game. He hasn't had a ton of success in the postseason. He is injury prone. He's missed a bunch of games. Like, I think it's very fair the Ravens aren't just throwing the bag at him. Now, if you want to talk about Deshaun Watson getting a bunch of guaranteed money, that's a different argument. Like, Deshaun Watson getting a bunch of guaranteed money has nothing to do with Lamar Jackson. If you want to make it about Lamar Jackson, you can, but I just don't see how it makes any sense. The Browns really wanted Deshaun Watson. They paid him a lot of money. Yeah, he did a lot of questionable things off the field. I don't know what to tell you. That's what Jimmy Haslam wanted to do. He wanted to pay Deshaun Watson a bunch of money to be the Browns quarterback. He did. Steve Bishotti doesn't want to play Lamar Jackson a bunch of guaranteed money to be the Raven quarterback. And still, the fact that no team has offered Lamar a big contract... Number one, traded for Lamar. Number two, or the Ravens haven't signed him to a long-term deal just proves that a lot more people in the NFL and front offices think about Lamar like I do. He's a good player. It's not worth all that guaranteed money. That's just it. For me, he does not throw the ball consistently and accurately enough from the pocket. That's been my complaint all the time. He won MVP without doing that. If you want to nitpick a couple throws here and there, I'll go through every throw and look at incomplete throws where he's missed guys wide open because he does that a lot. This clown Steven Ruiz just tweets out, oh, look at this throw, look at this throw. How about you look through all of them, bro? Because he's missed guys in the flat wide open. So I really, like, I understand people be like, AJ, here you go again. You're anti-Lamar. I don't know if I'm anti-Lamar. I'm anti um, the hype beast of Lamar. The Lamar hype beast. That's what I'm anti. Good player. But the fact that no team has offered him a big contract or traded for him, nor have the Ravens offered him the big contract, proves all my points. Proves all my points. If he was so good, if he was such in demand, how come no teams have made a splash for him? How come owners are publicly saying they're out on him? Then in. How come? How come? I just want to know. So that's the Lamar update. Rodgers update. 
Uh, Florio reporting that the Packers have backed away from wanting the Jets' 13th overall pick in this draft for Aaron Rodgers. So it's really, again, with this situation, no team really has leverage. Rodgers has said that he wants to play for the Jets, so it's not like the Jets can be like, uh, you know, other teams want this guy. You got to do it with us. And the Packers can't be like, yeah, he's, he's going to go to other teams. He doesn't just want to go to you. No. So they're going to have to get those guys in a room and, and knock a deal down. But we'll see when that happens. So there's the Rodgers update. Show My Face says Stafford will be ready to roll for this upcoming season after winning the Super Bowl with the Rams this first year and having a very injury-plagued season last year. Hopefully Stafford is ready to go with the Rams. We will see them play at a high level again. Matt LaFleur says we got to temper our expectations for Jordan Love, which is interesting to me because are there a lot of people that have a lot of high expectations? I mean, the guy hasn't got a ton of game action He's looked okay. Hasn't really been surrounded with the most talented team. A lot of injuries on that Packer team, especially when he's been playing the games. So, who's got high expectations? I don't know. Maybe Packer Nation, I guess. And Kyle Shanahan is unclear on Brock Purdy's return date after Purdy had to have surgery on that UCL. All right, PGA Tour, Valero, Texas Open. Ricky's in the field, as is Matt Kuchar, Siwoo Kim, Kirk, Corey Connors, JJ Spawn. Light field ahead of next week's Masters, of course. So a big Masters preview, as we know, on Thursday's show. So looking forward to that. Um, and then so we'll have Tuesday's show will be a natty recap and a goodbye to college basketball for the season. And then Thursday we will take that stroll down Magnolia Lane. Tradition, unlike any other Masters. All right. Um, so that's the sports for the show. Uh, we will have that Sunday pod for the Monday night national championship. I'll wake up Sunday, watch a little footy, write down some notes, and then get you that pod. So it'll be out probably Sunday afternoon, maybe. Um, but certainly in time for you to listen. Shouldn't be that long either, but uh, for Monday night's national championship, whoever wins the game Saturday night. So we're going to do uh, Mando after this. So if you are not caught up on Mando, not watching Mando, tune out right now. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the Final Four on Saturday night. But if you are looking forward to the Mando stuff, stay tuned because we're going to do spoilers right now for Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 5. So if you've not tuned in, tune out. If you have not tuned in, tune out. That's what we're saying here. Spoilers, 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 spoilers. Okay, so we start. Our guy, the High Magistrate Grief, is doing some city planning. He gets a call from a pirate. The pirates are back uh, from episode one there. They're above Navarro. Grief basically saying that the other pirate shot first. It's not his fault that he had to take his guys out in the street there in episode one. Um, and Grief also bluffs that. The New Republic. It's a New Republic planet, Navarro. So that's a big deal, but the pirates really don't care because he's like, dude, they can't even protect planets in the mid-rim, let alone the outer rim. They ain't protecting Navarro, buddy. We're attacking. So they attack with the gunship. Uh, Grief and the citizens have to flee to the uh, lava caves over there, the lava land. 
and Grief sends out a message to the New Republic, and it's the X-Wing Captain Carson who gets the message. Now, I haven't watched Rebels, so the big guy, uh, Zeb, wasn't a big deal for me, but I'm sure a lot of people who watch Rebels uh, saw one of the guys from the cartoon, and they were excited for a live-action guy, so that was a big deal. I saw people were very excited about that, so there you go. Um, and basically, they have a conversation, and he's like, bro, you can reach out to Coruscant all you want. Navarro is not a New Republic planet, and they don't really care. So you might have to do something yourself. So he's like, yeah, I will do something myself. He goes to Coruscant. So he goes to the New Republic to try to ask for an intervention. He meets with the colonel, who's played by Tim Robbins, who is doing a nice job as he in Star Wars. But again, some of these big actors, guys, like I don't need them in Star Wars because they kind of break it for me. I'm like, hey, there's that guy is Tim Robbins. What is he doing? You know? He's a very good actor, but, like, I can't... I kind of broke there, my immersion. But that's okay. Uh, so he meets with the colonel. Guess who's just outside hanging out? Of course, it's that Empire... Um, I was going to say the B word, but I won't. Ella Kane, just hanging out. So she intervenes. She walks in um, as the captain is making his appeal for the New Republic to send a squad to Navarro to squash it. But Ella Kane comes in. She says that it's not a New Republic uh, planet. So we can't help. Some of these planets don't want our help, you know, all that kind of stuff. So she's intervening again. And the captain, Carson's basically like, hey, I don't think Gideon got to trial. I'm just saying that this stuff is there's too many coincidences here. This is BS like this is some nonsense. And by the time. You guys figure out something's going on. It's going to be way too late, which it ended up being, as we know. So I really have said this before, and I think I've said it on the pod, but Mando is going to fix the sequel series. It is. They're going to do their best to tell you about the cloning thing, tell you about how the New Republic fell and the First Order came to power. That's what this series is. So once you figure that out, I think it helps. Now... The colonel says they can't help. So Carson is scanning, and you're like, what the hell is he flying over? And you're like, is he at the co the covert? And he is. He pulls up. He's like, yo, I knew where you were. I don't. I come in peace. I'm not trying to do anything. R5 told me where you were. <laughs> R5 comes out like, what's up? So I thought that was funny. Uh, but Carson basically tells... The Mandos that, hey, Navarro is under attack. You guys were hanging out there before. I understand that you're going to have to move now, but I won't say anything. I don't like I barely know where the hell I am. So just to let you know, Navarro is under attack. And Paz kind of like passes it off, but Din handles it. Gets the story about grief. Um and then uh, Carson goes away, which is which was interesting to see him. Uh, how many X-wing uh, pilots are there? I guess there's not many, but whatever. Anyway, uh, so they're doing the talking stick by the fire thing. Din has the stick. He makes the plea to help Navarro, and he's like, "Hey, it's time to get out of the darkness, man. It we got a we got a place to live there, and it's not in the sewer. It's." on the surface and we would be allowed to live there and we would have domain over our land. So like he's basically like, Hey, we got an opportunity here to 
save a place and then have that be our home and we can come out of the hiding. And Paz steps up and he starts his speech basically like, why would we do that? We shouldn't do that. But we're going to do it because we're Mandalorians. And it was awesome. That was awesome. So he flips the speech right there, gets everybody fired up, and they decide they're going to go save Navarro. So we get a cool scene in hyperspace with Bo priming the strike force in the in her ship and um, Din and Grogu in the N1. They're going to have the Starfighters chase the M1 around, and she's going to come in and drop people off her ground assault and take on the command ship. So Din comes in. They scramble the fighters. They chase them off. She drops in the assault teams who eventually get ambushed in the courtyard, but here comes Paz with the minigun. He saves the ambush, uh, but the pirates have a big stationary gun that takes, you know, puts down some heavy fire and stops the Mandalorians from advancing, but here comes the armorer. She don't need a gun. She's got her wielding tools and bending tools. And she just pummels the crap out of these five pirates. Knocks out the guy in the big gun. The Mandalorians advance. And the pirates get chased out of the town. They're trying to leave. But Grief and the citizens are there to corner them at the uh, landing zone. So everybody's happy. Um, Grief makes a really nice speech about giving the Mandalorians the land. And how they should be here. And... You know, thank you for saving them and all that kind of stuff. So as that was nice. And now we have a moment where they're in the sewer and Paz comes up to Bo-Katan and says, the armor wants to see you at the forge. So here comes Bo. And the armor is basically like, yeah, we need you to unite everybody. You know, not be, you know, she didn't say it. She's like, I'm fired up from Tin's speech before. And we got to come back. And you told me about the Mythosaur. I believe you. Take off your helmet. You got a special dispensation. You walk the way in different paths and you can unite us and you can bring us all together. So she's like, are you sure? I just take off my, takes off her helmet. Big deal. She walks out. She's got her helmet off. Everybody's like, what the hell are we doing? We're doing this again. Why'd she take her helmet off? She was just in. Now she's out. And the armor's basically like, yo, she walks both lives. She can bring all the mandos together. She's got to go out there and find more of them. So that's where we kind of ended on Navarro. And we thought the episode would end there, but we have back to Captain Carson, who finds the wreckage of a uh, Lambda-class shuttle, formerly of the Empire, but then of the New Republic, because they're going to use the ships, guys. If the ships are good, the New Republic's going to use them, right? Um, so he finds it. He runs the plates to his boy. His one boy's like, it's classified. Let me do some digging. And it turns out it was Moff Gideon's transport. Um, got attacked. No trace of Gideon, but there's Beskar alloy in the transport, which could be a couple things. And I was watching, shout out to Screen Crush, shout out Heavy Spoilers, those channels on YouTube. Those are really, really good channels. If you're interested in more Star Wars stuff, I, I would implore you to check out those channels because I love these recaps that they give. Because even I don't, I don't watch Clone, I didn't watch Clone Wars or Rebels or, I really watch the movies. And I watch Obi-Wan and I watch Mando. I don't really watch a ton of the other shows, to be fair. Like Bad Batch or, um... Book of Boba Fett I didn't watch. So those guys do a really great job. And a lot of them are theorizing about this. I think it could be other Mandalorians breaking him out because they see him that he previously had the Darksaber, that he, he's like one of their leaders. 
or it could be the setup. Could be the Empire trying to set up the Mandalorians for the New Republic to target them as a uh, enemy. So I think it's really interesting. I'm very excited to see where they're going. Again, like when Farrow's like, we're not even like at the surface of the storytelling of this series. Like that really excites me because I like the sequel series for a lot of things. I wish it had more direction and I wish Filoni and Favreau were in charge instead of J.J. Abrams, Rian Johnson, and Kathleen Kennedy. That's another story for another day, unfortunately. But these guys, okay, in Favreau and Filoni are going to right the wrongs of the sequel trilogy in this show. If you haven't figured that out yet, they're doing it. They're showing you how the New Republic failed and the First Order came about. They're fixing that gap. Okay. That was like, hey, they came to the power. It is what it is. They got a Snoke guy. He's in power now. Like, what? How did that happen? They're going to show us that. They're going to show us how Palpatine got cloned for the ninth movie. Okay. They're going to fix the wrongs. So I'm excited. I think they've done a great job. I love the show. I get immersed in it. It's a great Star Wars product. The he shot first line was good. Um, good luck. You're going to need it from Zeb to Captain Carson was good. Uh, a lot of callbacks, a lot of fun things. R5 being the guy, uh, the droid that Carson finds the covert from. They did the same scanning sound from him using the X-Wing scanner to um, the guy in the speeder looking for Han and Luke in Empire, early in Empire. So, I think it's a great show. I've enjoyed it. I understand people complaining, but then don't watch. Then don't watch. No one's forcing you to watch these things. You know, I don't know. That's another story for another day, I guess. But all right. Uh, so that's Mando, Episode 5, Season 3, Reaction. We will recap the Final Four in the National Championship on Tuesday. But before that, we'll do a National Championship preview on Sunday. So look out for that over the weekend and on Monday ahead of the Natty. We'll wrap it all up on Tuesday's show and a look ahead to the Masters after that. So, everybody have a great weekend. Enjoy Final Four Saturday. Talk to you later. Peace. Football, football, and sometimes other sports show. Sounds like me.